Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale June 9th, 2021. I am Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yeah, Tucker, you uh, you spent all morning uh, lifting wood out of a truck <laughs> and arguing with construction workers. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I um, No, it's mostly me like feeling intimidated and scared by uh, people with actual calluses on their hands. <laughs> yeah, that I'm a soft boy. Like yeah, I've, I, I, I don't do how like building things. <laughs> I didn't grow up learning how to do these things. Owning a house is a big learning curve. Oh, I for me. Bet, I bet. Uh, but that's okay. We're doing all right. We are here not to talk about being soft. We are here to talk about good ass comic books, and we got a lot yeah. of them out this week from Marvel. We'll tell you all about the new books. We'll give you our picks. Hint. They are all around two very big things going on in the Marvel Universe right now. Uh, We'll give out some awards, which means we need a name for this week's award. Then we'll tell you what's hitting the collections this week, what's on Marvel Unlimited, and then we'll get into our interview this week. Who are we talking to this week, Tucker? This week we're talking to the man with the mind that scares me even more than some burly construction workers. That's Al Ewing. And we're going to be chatting with him about his book from a few years back, Loki, Agent of Asgard. Perfect timing with Marvel Studios' Loki premiering this week on Disney+. Plus. So definitely check that out. Uh, All right, lots of Loki talk to come, but let's get into our picks of the week. I'm going to go first with my first pick, which is Heroes Reborn, number six, written by Jason Aaron, art by Erica Durso. Colors by Jason Keith in the main story. Then, of course, there's the secondary story written by Jason with art by Ed McGinnis, Mark Morales, and Matthew Wilson. I'm going to talk about the second story real quickly because it's the through line between each issue of Heroes Reborn, where Jason, Ed, and the team sort of gathering the Avengers back together in this tipsy, topsy, turny around world, trying to figure out what's going on, gathering everybody. So this issue, they're really getting close to forming things. They get a big help as Thor is finally on board with uh, the Avengers. He knows something is wrong. So that's a a huge help for them. But the sort of main story in this, like each issue follows a particular member of the Squadron Supreme of America. This one is all focused on Power Princess. Look, I'm in the bag for anything Jason writes. No matter what he does, I'm pretty much here for. This issue ruled so hard. His Power Princess is terrifying. She is the strongest, fiercest, most dangerous person around. She beats the crap out of the Mangog. She's like kept Hercules locked in stone in her fortress. Uh, She has like a stone garden of some of her fallen foes, which circles her base of operations, which is the Statue of Liberty. Only the Ghostbusters can (laughs) spend that much time in the Statue of Liberty. I think that's a law. It's such a great issue. It's full of fun Wild ideas, great flashback moments where Power Princess and Namor had a thing, which is, come on, we talk about it all the time. (laughs) Give us more of this world. If you could give me six issues of Namor and Power Princess just loving it up, fighting it up, I would love it. Uh, Erica Derso coming real, real strong in this issue. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Action just flows. There's lots of lightning and stuff in here. Uh, Power Princess and Thor sort of go at it for a while. It's great. This is another great issue, um, a stellar, stellar series that we've been talking about week in, week out, and it's 
got another great one right here. Totally. Moving on to my pick this week, which is Excalibur number 21. This is the fourth Hellfire Gala issue. We covered uh, the first three last week, and now we have a couple this week. This issue is, of course, written by Teeny Howard with art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Arciniega, and letters by VCs Ariana Marr. And the kind of billing for this issue was interesting, and it was like more character-focused than most others, which I found unique and compelling, and that centered around Richter, which a lot revolves around in this issue, as you would therefore imagine. I don't want to talk too much about what that means. It's very, very interesting what goes on with him. The tagline, I think, for the issue was Richter hates parties. And we see what that exactly means. We see who shows up, why he might not be having the best time here, and what he does about it, which is really, really cool. But this issue is starting to dig deeper and deeper into the international relations side of the Hellfire Gala, not just all the mutants that are invited, not the mutant heroes or the mutant villains, which have obviously all their own complexities to deal with, or the likes of Captain America or Iron Man that we saw show up in books last week, but other representatives of other groups, of other nations, of just people with different priorities than the mutants. So, of course, this is a party. This is a ball. But it's also an important event in terms of the export of Krakoan things to the rest of the world, whether that is literal, literal exports, or whether that is the culture of Krakoa and the mutants really solidifying themselves as a force to be reckoned with on the global scale. There's so, so much to dig into. As always, it's just paced and laid out gorgeously and with so much empathy and humanity by Teeny Howard. I, you know, it just feels like Teeny's on this level now where we have so much to deal with. We have so much to handle just in terms of plot, in terms of stuff to get through in an issue like this. And yet somehow she manages to do not only that, but also pepper in these beautiful little moments, these funny moments, these moments that it just leaves you wanting more in every interaction in the very, very best way. This is what the Hellfire Gala is all about to me. It's about those interactions, about learning those things. It's about pushing Krakoa forward via the people that are there to represent it. It's really, really cool. And uh, we have similarly, I think with with the next pick coming up, a lot more to, to deal with in that same vein. Yeah, we're going deeper into the Hellfire Gala with X-Men number 21 as the next pick. I want to say one thing, though. So in the back of each of these issues is a sort of like kind of recommended reading list of what what the X-Books say you should read. And I'm going to say I beg to differ slightly. I think for them, it's Excalibur, X-Men, then Children of the Atom. I would actually say read Children of the Atom, then X-Men, and then Excalibur if you're reading all three. Children of the Atom has some stuff that sort of kind of like leads into the Hellfire Gala timeframe wise. Excalibur has some stuff that happened. It's obviously during the entire Hellfire Gala, but it, there's things that you sort of, if if you don't read all the news sites and, and, you know, the gossip blogs about comics, you may not know who the new team of X-Men is. And so you learn some stuff in Excalibur that you sort of undercut something in X-Men. I don't want to say undercut in a negative way. It's just like, oh, this happened. And then you read X-Men and you get like the bigger 
reveal of it all. And so, yeah, in the issue of X-Men number 21, it is revealed in the universe the full team of X-Men. And I think we did talk about this publicly in like press releases and stuff. So I guess it's not much of a secret, but I think not everybody like follows along super closely. So, and this issue, masterful. It is written by Jonathan Hickman. I believe this is his last issue of X-Men before Jerry takes over next month. He's like, all right, I'm going to go out like a beast. I'm going to bring in on art, Nick Dragota, Russell Dodderman, Lucas Wernick, and Sarah Pakelli. Lucas is sort of the the youngest one. He's done some great variant covers. Seeing his art in here, stellar. Nick Dragota, absolutely love. He has not done a lot of Marvel stuff of late, but wow, he crushes it here. But come on, Sarah and Russell, like they could retire now and still have legendary careers under their belts. So good. Colorists for this issue include Frank Martin, Matthew Wilson, Sonny Goh, and Nolan Woodard. All amazing colorist letters by VCs Clayton Cowles and Tom Muller, of course, doing design. This is the way to go out. If you're saying this is my last of this X-Men run right now, and I'm going to hand it over to Jerry, this is how you do it. It opens with a perfect Ryan Panago scene in which (laughs) you have Namor at the gala drinking drinks, getting served by uh, Madrox. And he's like, keep bringing them drinks, boy. And saddling up to Namor come Charles Xavier and Magneto in their like white and gold finery, just like, ooh, let's talk to Namor. Let's get the first mutant on our side. Let's get the big boy, the ruler of the seas. The conversation that Jonathan writes here, it is everything that I, I love about Namor. It's like, he doesn't need any of your BS. Don't don't come blowing <laughs> smoke up his skirt. He's not going to be here for that. It's so good. Namor is primo. I This makes me go, why isn't Jonathan writing a Namor comic right now? Like, oh man, it's so good. Uh, and this is the Nick Dragota section in here. He draws Namor sexy and scary and kind of alien and alluring. He's everything. And whenever we talk about Namor and I'm like, hoo goo ga about Namor, it's right here. This is the book in like four pages that'll show you why I love Namor and why everybody should love Namor. But that's just the first part of it. We go in there, we get into some beautiful pages by Russell Dodderman, where he's, he's drawing the revelation of the new team of X-Men. My favorite moment is one of the members of the team. I won't spoil it here in case you you, you haven't had it spoiled for you. Uh, one of the members of the team is eating shrimp and is like <laughs> the way that Russell draws them completely caught off guard. I love that moment. They're like, what? Me? Great. I'm in. We get into there. We go into the, the Lucas Murnock pages and more conversations and sort of like character building and world building around the X-Men. And then it, f- it finishes up with Sarah Kelly and Emma Frost and sort of this this beautiful magical moment that we've been like sort of circling around in like these fireworks. We've been hearing about these fireworks. And next week we get Planet Size X-Men. I, I'm guessing we're going to get some of those fireworks next week. It is beautiful. It is incredible. It's really just damn great comics. Yeah. Uh, we also wanted to point out real quick, Children of the Atom, number four out this week. It is a tangential tie to the Hellfire Gala. There's some some business in there with the kids getting into some trouble and, you know, how uh, they're trying. They're basically trying to sneak their way into the Hellfire Gala, which, come on, 
who wouldn't want to sneak their way into the biggest party of the year? Yeah, yeah, it's it's perfect. It's so great. Um, so so grateful for this time of X Men. We will have plenty of time in the future to reflect upon the Hickman. X-Men 2019 run, and I'm sure we can dig very, very deep into it. Who knows? Maybe we can do a reading club on that one day. I would really love yeah. that. Anyway, we are diving now into our fresh floppies hitting shelves this week. And you know, Ryan, I'm not much of a soda drinker, but when I am, Sierra List, Ooh. the refreshing carbonated beverage that is zingy on your tongue. I, I like clearly I could see that the bit was forming as you were speaking yeah. the words. Like the, the there was turning. no track for that that train to get onto. <laughs> but it's good. It's good. Yeah, I, I am here for a Sierra list. Yeah, we're drinking up some Sierra list this week, and uh it is tasty stuff. We're starting off with a Sierra list toast to Amazing Spider-Man number 68. Notably, this issue is co-written by Nick Spencer and Ed Brisson. So cool to see Ed jumping on board the ASM train here. What's been a, a great character sort of renewal, re-emergence sort of for me um, recently in ASM is Teresa Parker. It's a character that I think debuted in 2014. I got to know the character from Chip Zdarsky's run on Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man uh, in which Teresa played a pretty big role. And it was really, really fun to see that dynamic play out there. To see uh, Teresa jump in the pool with ASM and have a really big role in what's going on right now is super fun. It's really interesting. And a lot of big things are swirling right now. So my CR list goes out particular to the supervillains of uh, Amazing Spider-Man. I think they're so well written in here. There's a bunch of them. And uh, there's something happening here. There's something in the air right now. And we're heading in a certain direction. This issue starts blowing the wind uh, very, very heavily that way, which is very cool. And, and if you pick it up, you'll see exactly what that means. Yeah. All right. We've got Conan the Barbarian number 22 out this week as uh, Conan is he's helped out an empire, the the Katai, and brought back a sword. And he's, he's sort of not trusted, but also he's he's kind of been on their side. Um, but there's, there's a lot of intrigue and court stuff and backstabbing and machinations going on in this issue. But my Sierra list goes to Conan learning to hold back a little bit. There's a training sequence where a sword master basically says, yeah, 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 you're strong, you're fast, you're, you could do a lot of stuff with your sword, but you can do so much more if you focus a little bit. There's a really cool little sequence with him learning to think about his movements a little bit more with a sword, like a, like a major sword master. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we mentioned uh, the Heroes Reborn business a little bit earlier, and we're jumping back into it now with Heroes Reborn Night Gwen, number one. There's something about Night Gwen, the character here, how she's positioned in the this universe, what she's playing off of in our universe, what she's playing off of, obviously, in the Marvel universe, how that's kind of folding in on itself. It's so much fun. So this is like a nighttime crime story with Night Gwen, and it's so excellent. So Sierra List goes to Vita Ayala because I think they have so much love for this world. And you could just, it's one of those issues where not only does the character fit so perfectly into it, but uh, there is um, just so much fun being had across the board. 
Yeah. All right. One more Heroes Reborn issue this week. It's Heroes Reborn Squadron Savage. This one is cool because it gives us a look at Heroes Reborn universe versions of Elektra, Punisher, Cloak, and Dagger, Kang, Winter Soldier, Crossbones. It's a wild issue. Is There's a a lot of death in this one. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of business going on. Though my Sierra list for this one goes to the character Murder Hornet, which I think, mm-hmm. how have we not had a Murder Hornet <laughs> show up in in proper Marvel universe already? It's tremendous. Oh yeah. Next up, we have Iron Man number nine. This is uh, another entry in what has become very quickly a great Korvac. Saga, a great Korvac story. It's a character that I think has a very fascinating place in history in the Marvel Universe. And so for Christopher Cantwell to pick him out and say, this is my guy. I'm taking over a big Iron Man book. And there's something about this character that I really, really want to focus on is so cool. It's also great to see my Sierra list goes to Christopher Cantwell's willingness to put Tony Stark under the gun to really, really give the bad guys some wins and make you feel like you're backed into a corner. It's a really interesting story that's been unfolding here. And I think this is another very, very worthwhile entry. Yeah. All right. Let's go over to another alternate universe with Spider-Man Spider's Shadow number three. Again, if you don't know, Spider's Shadow is one of a uh, new branding for What If, a new idea that we're doing what if but uh as a longer story limited series type of thing we uh cb sabolsky hinted there's more on the way in episode 500 of this week in marvel so this is the first of hopefully forever getting new what if stories that's my hope because what if is my favorite thing uh, and this is what if spider-man had had not gotten rid of the uh black suit the symbiote and so it's been hellish Spider-Man is basically now going around killing his enemies and just relentless, scary. So this issue, the first half of it is Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six or the version of Sinister Six that show up in here. He takes the body of the beetle and strings him up dead as like a, this is what's going to happen to you moment. And it's wild. My Sierra list for this one goes to the start of the battle, the way that Pasquale Ferry sort of shows the terrifying like confusion that the quote unquote villains of this are going through as Spider-Man is, is coming out of the ground. It's like, he's, he's moving two steps ahead of them. It's scary and it's cool. This is like, this is a really great horror story. It's going in twists and turns. I'm not anticipating, especially the last couple pages. I love it so much. Yeah, it's great. All right, moving over now to the realm of Star Wars. We are picking up Star Wars Bounty Hunters number 13. And of course, like every single Star Wars book is right now, this is a War of the Bounty Hunters tie-in book. If you've been paying attention to Star Wars over the past couple of years, there's some big stuff that's happening story-wise, some big stuff that's happening in terms of the larger Star Wars universe that's getting pulled into the War of the Bounty Hunters story. And it's really, really cool. The Valance character is one that I've really, really become a fan of. Uh, I think Ethan Sachs, the writer, has just done a great job of humanizing this character while also keeping him really um, a great threat and a really unique figure in the Star Wars universe. It's an interesting dynamic of what's going on right now in the War of the Bounty Hunters. And we are kind of barely even getting started. 
So yeah, if you're a fan of bounty hunters, if you're a fan of the larger Star Wars story that's been told in particular in this era of the Star Wars timeline, I would say tune in. All right, now moving from Star Wars, I'm going to keep it going with Strange Academy number 11. Um, This is a book where I'm so grateful that we have the covers because I wanted to double check and see if there's a certain character that shows up here on the the covers. That character is not on the covers, so I don't want to talk about them showing up. But my Sierra list goes to that unnamed character. There is a silhouette, a very recognizable silhouette that you will just have to imagine me giving an award to. It's so much fun. It's such a Scotty Young choice. Also, these poor kids have been through a lot. Seriously, um, <laughs> what the heck, man? <laughs> but it's really, really great. What a, what a, you know, it's just full of so much emotion and, and heart, this book. Uh, and in this issue, a bunch of laughs. There's also um, some stuff from Weird World, the Weird World books that we did a yes, couple years yes. back, which I really loved. There's a Jason Aaron Weird World story, and there's a Sam Humphrey's Weird World story. Highly suggest if you're like, oh, there's some references to Weird World in here. Maybe I should go read those on Marvel Unlimited. Yes, they rule. Check those out. All right, last new book of the week is Web of Spider-Man number one. Uh, This one is cool. It's a tie-in to the new attraction that is coming to Disney California Adventure as part of Avengers Campus, Web of Spider-Man and the the Spider-Man ride. I'm dying that I am not... (laughs) I haven't been to a Disney park in a while. It's like one of those things. It's There's just so much fun and they're great. I can't wait to get into the Spider-Man attraction, but this is cool. It it basically sets you up in sort of the story and what's going on. You get to see so the characters that Peter Parker is interacting with. Moon Girl's in here, which is really fun. Peter Parker, poor kid can't keep his identity secret. There's If you're, you're trying to like place the exact continuity slash universe of it, don't worry about it. Just go with it. There's another character who was really one of my personal favorites who shows up in here. She's terrific. If you're excited about going back to the theme parks and, and experiencing the Spider-Man attraction, you should read Web of Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. That's what we have for new issues hitting shelves this week at your five and dime. So intensify your involvement, stalwarts, and go down and grab one or grab 10. Uh, Now looking at the collection section, there is a big list this week. In particular, a couple stand out, a couple favorites, dare I say it, uh, favorites of both of ours, Ryan. That's Black Cat Volume 4, Queen in Black, and Immortal Hulk Volume 9, the weakest one there is, uh, especially as Immortal Hulk is speeding towards its dramatic conclusion. Uh, Go ahead and pick those up. Yeah, over in Marvel Unlimited, uh, got a lot of great stuff. America Chavez made in the USA number one. Uh, New Avengers, Demon Days, X-Men by Peach Momoko. So good. Bunch of King of Black stuff. And issue 34 of Runaways. So now you have 34 issues of one of our favorite books to read in Marvel Unlimited. You have no excuses. Read Runaways. Yes. It's the best. Speaking of the best, we have... One of the best guests this week, uh, someone who's been on the show before. We're happy to have him on again. It is Al Ewing. What are we talking about again, Tucker? Uh, We're talking about 2014's Loki Agent of Asgard. That's a book that Al wrote, and we're digging into all the details. It's a really, really great story. So speaking of Marvel Unlimited, go check it out before we have this chat. Go check it out as we're talking. You can take a look at the art, all that good stuff. So let's do it. (laughs) 
Tucker, I am excited to welcome back our guest to the show this week. He's been on the show before. It's Mr. Al Ewing. And Al, we are here to talk about Loki, Agent of Asgard. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm um, still cracking on with everything, still uh, working on the many, the many, many comics. This is one of those moments, dear listener, where Ryan and I have some things that we're especially excited about, but that we especially cannot talk about with regard to those very things that Mr. Ewing is working on. But we'll stay away from all that. Al, today we're talking about Loki, Agent of Asgard. And just to kick us off, why'd you pick this this book? Well, it's one of my favorite books that I've done. It's one of the earliest ones that I did for Marvel. I know it still has, even after all this time, a lot of fans out there. It's one of those books that means a lot to people. And, you know, it means a lot to me as well, because it's, um, I put a lot of myself into it and working with Lee Garbutt on it was absolutely wonderful. We're always sort of trying to find a way to work together again. <laughs> Surely only a matter of time. Yeah, Lee's Lee's kind of magical too. I, I want to definitely get into talking about Lee and, and his work here. There's a lot of things I want to talk about. But before that, I, I just want to sort of set the stage. You mentioned this was early on in your, your time with Marvel. What point did you actually just start breaking into comics? You were working on what, 2000 AD and stuff like that. And then Marvel, you started like 2012, 2013, right? Yeah, that was about 10 years. And the first comic story I ever sold for money was 2002. And that was 2008. And that was, they do this thing called Future Shocks. The concept is basically you write them a story with a twist ending that's not connected to anything. And then if they like it, they'll buy it. I started out with horror stories called Terror Tales, but um, I spent 10 years there and then I went to Marvel. Yeah. When I think about this Loki story in your sort of like catalog, I don't remember it being so early. And then I remember like, you came to us so fully formed and like knocking stuff out of the park, like Mighty Avengers. I loved Loki. And then you started, you know, on and on and on. How did this Loki book come together? Were you talking with Kieran about Loki stuff before you jumped in? Or? Yeah, I mean, obviously I knew Kieran long before I, I was a Marvel. We were all kind of part of the British comic scene of the time. Basically, I was sort of working steadily at 2000 AD. And then I think it was actually 2000 AD stuff that sort of, got me noticed by uh, Lawrence Sankovic, who was Loki's uh, first editor. And I think I think some stuff like Zombo that I'd done, or maybe some of the dreads, people at Marvel sort of noticed that. And then Lauren got me again doing a couple of fill-in stories. Fill-in's the wrong word, tie-in, because it was Age of Ultron-related stuff. So I did those, and those went down well. And that's when I started getting emails that were basically like, what do you think about this character? Do you want to do something a little bigger for us? And that was uh, how Lucky came to be. I sort of went away and kind of came up with something to what an agent of Asgard book could be. And I think the starting point of it was sort of Loki doing missions to kind of change his story. And I think, yeah, the first five issues were in the pitch. I know old Loki was in the pitch. The issue three where he goes back in time, that was in there. But that was basically sort of how it came to be. And then, you know, in the course of that, I was given a sort of list of artists who might be available. And one of them was Lee, who I also knew from British conventions and just chatting. I, 
you know, I was a big fan of his art. We'd actually done a strip together for 2000 AD that was one page long. <laughs> and I'd like, obviously, since then, he'd kind of, you know, he'd been working with Grant Morrison. He'd been doing like uh, Return of Bruce Wayne, the final issue of that, which is an amazing issue, amazing comic. And yeah, you know, he just seemed like a sort of no brain choice to kind of the perfect person to do Loki with. He was the guy. To jump backwards, growing up in England, I think depending on the year that we're talking about, there's always a little bit of a price of entry to pay to get into the world of comics. Financially, socially, just logistically, where's your local shop? Like who knows? All those different things. But if you you grew up not in the United States, that feels like it can be a little bit trickier in different ways in terms of weekly comics, in terms of what's available. Can you talk about what that was like for you growing up and what about it all was just so magnetic that it, you know, obviously grabbed you and said, you need to do this. You need to read these. You need to get involved. You need to become a huge fan and obviously learn along the way how comics are put together. But can you talk about that journey from a young age for you? We, we had the reprints in that we had Marvel UK doing reprints of American Marvel comics, Secret Wars, uh, the original Secret Wars, that was out in a kind of weekly format. They'd break the issues down into sort of chunks of about six or seven pages and then kind of find a decent enough cliffhanger to end an episode on and then put out that chunk. And that would be, you know, that would be there with like a chunk of Alpha Flight and a chunk of, I think there was Zoids in there. It's like uh, there was the Jane Demetrius Iceman mini just stuffed in there, you know, why not? So, you know, this, from the point of view of a British guy of a certain age, Things like the Gem de Mateus Iceman Mini are like vastly more important than the Dark Phoenix saga. <laughs> um, like, you know, it's like our introduction to Marvel with like Alpha Flight. But um, around that time, the mid 80s, American comics started arriving in news agents as well. I could go and get an issue of Walt Simonson Thor for like 40p. And, you know, there was like uh, Roger Stern, I think Roger Stern Spider Man at the same time, John Byrne on the Hulk. So going into Peter David, um, this was all like around that era, and you know it, it kind of became easier to get my hands on like American comics. And th those are good introductions too. Those like you know, yeah. if you want to get into American superheroes, especially Walt on Thor, which leads me to sort of wanting to ask like, what is your what Loki stories influenced you? Was it you know the Loki in Walt's Thor? Were there any others that you looked to when you were thinking about Loki, Agent of Asgard? Walt Simonson thought was probably like the biggest influence. I feel like my idea of like Loki, it kind of comes from like, I think three places in the, the original 60s Loki, the one from the Jack Kirby era, where he's very much in his role. And then you've got the Walt Simonson one who's like much suaver about it. He's got a bit more nuance to him. And then recently, before I took over, you know, I, I kind of got back into Marvel with the Morrison X-Men. I wandered away in the 90s. But I got back in and in the year 2000, kind of stayed. So I was there when, like, a lot of people I knew started getting there, like Karen. So again, I don't So I was, I was right there on the ground floor for the whole Kid Loki business. That was obviously a major kind of influence, especially as I was sort of carrying right on from it. So those are the kind of big three Lokis for me. When you were writing Agent of Asgard, when you were asked to pitch on this, what is your process for pitching like that? 
Is that something that comes easily to you? Is that something where you just go, I have a bank of a dozen stories for take your pick Marvel character and I can just go to it and, and refine it, work on it, flesh it out. Or is it something that is a little bit more like, all right, we got to sit down. We got to really grind on this and make sure it's worthy. It's perfect for something like this. It's, it's more sort of sitting down and grinding a little bit because it is a pitch. You're trying to persuade somebody that this is a sort of a story they want to invest in. And also the other thing about pitches is that these are things that are often done before there's an artist assigned, before you actually sit down and write the actual scripts. And it'll wriggle out from under you. The best a pitch can ever be is a sort of idea of what might be. I'm not good at making these like super detailed maps. And I, I kind of feel no sort of guilt about deviating from the pitch as it was originally conceived. When I'm in the moment and at the coalface and like suddenly staring a plot beat in the face and going, no, it's not going to work. I find that fascinating because I've heard your Immortal Hulk plans for years <laughs> and I've watched them come to fruition. And I, my vision of Al Ewing is this sort of like birthing your idea and you've got your X number of issues because I will not say however many number of issues a story will have, but it's like it's there. But then now as you start, as we're discussing, I'm like, I can see how oh yeah, you want to tell this story and this thread goes over here. Yes, you are a master planner, even if you are <laughs> humble about it because I've seen it in action now. I mean, I, I try to pop down, I mentioned like plotting out the first five issues. I always try and plot out the first five issues in like a lot of detail and make sure they're kind of a coherent unit and also sort of plan for like what the story is I want to tell, how I can break that down. But like with Loki, I knew where I wanted to get to. And this is usually the case. I sort of, I know where I want to get to. I know like where the landmark is that I want to reach. And then as I get closer to that, I'll know whether I want to sort of carry on past it or, or end it there. But with, with Loki, I, I knew I did want to carry on past it, but I knew, I knew where the landmark was. I knew that we were going to sort of end issue five with the revelation that old Loki is actually a Loki from the future. He's sort of rather than, the Loki that was, he's the Loki that potentially will be. For those who haven't read it and don't mind getting it spoiled, Agent of Asgard is Loki has sort of appeared in a new form. He's kind of de-aged. The Loki that was, the Loki from the Simonson years and the Kirby years is gone. And this is a new Loki trying to kind of make his own way. And yeah, basically, I knew that was there. I knew we were going to tell the story of Graham, the sword. So, you know, I had the beats... And then, you know, sort of as I went along, I'd kind of throw down various sort of twists and turns in the story as we went. What is it like in that thinking? So like you have the, the thoughts and you're going to throw down your beats and then to then run side by side with Original Sin. And then you're running side by side with Axis and sometimes crossing through these different events. And then by the end of it, you know, it's the secret wars of it all. And the last issue doesn't even really take place in, in a sort of functional reality. It's like that, as I was rereading it, I was like, man, that's, that's a lot of dancing between the raindrops that y'all had to, to do. It seems like. I mean, I knew it all served us in the end. I knew, I mean, to take secret wars as an example, I knew what that was and sort of roughly what form it was going to take. And 
we got a choice of like, okay, which of these versions of Secret Wars do you want to be part of? Do you want to do like a Battle Worlds or a, or a, a War Zones, or do you want to do a Last Days? I knew that I wanted to do a Last Days, and I knew we were going to set it after everything had ended in the void. I didn't know how we were going to get there, but I knew that was what the last issue would be. And I knew there'd be like a final confrontation between, you know, the two Lokis in the void. And I knew it was going to end with like a hug and a sort of a measure of forgiveness. Yeah, basically with the other crossovers, I don't know, there was a lot of that sort of dancing between the raindrops thing. But in every case, I mean, original Sin, I kind of plotted it out with Jason and, you know, I ran things past him and I knew what he needed to be in there, like the return of Odin. And I knew what was needed in terms of bringing Angela into it. And with with the other stuff with the, with Axis, the thing about that was like heroes becoming evil and sort of I did have like a load of fun kind of thinking about exactly how the heroes would become evil. In that, you know, Luke Cage was just gonna become this sort of heartless capitalist guy and, you know, Sam Wilson would just become this sort of US agent type. But like with Loki, I really like the idea of sort of flipping the good and the bad parts of him. So like on the outside, he's kind of doing all this law-abiding stuff and being a hero. But on the inside, he's just this complete jerk because he's like without any kind of guilt. It allowed me to kind of shine a light on how Loki had changed and how he was trying to improve. And like to just show a version that was sort of doing all of the right things. But just where it counted was just this complete scumbag. Like similarly, you know, the Enchantress is just this sort of, again, you know, this like law-abiding, very sort of goody-two-shoes type, this absolute stickler for the rules. And yeah, it really, it really let me sort of have fun with that side of things. And I got to do a thing which was Rick Romanda basically wrote this fight between Loki and Thor, where like Loki got the hammer. And what I kind of got to do in my end was sort of assuming people sort of read that part of it. I could kind of take the parts that weren't in Axis and kind of write around them and again sort of make that work for me. And it was great because it all it all fit together. It all like um, you know, you could read both books and they didn't contradict. That was a lot of fun to kind of tell these two sort of very different stories that were coming from very different places. So I did, I did end up having a lot of fun with the times. As you were talking through that, it made me think about storytelling and where these ideas or, originate. And, and obviously everything you're saying is, is so detailed and has so much character nuance to it and is seeded by so many different things. Ryan and I just got to talk to Adam Kubert. He talked a lot about the limitations of a story being his favorite thing. And having the walls built around his sandbox really informing the way that he's going to tell the story. I was curious with you, Al, if that's an opinion you agree with. And just generally, if that's something that works for you similarly. And just generally, if when you're thinking of these stories, when you're coming up with, okay, like you said, this character is going to go in this direction and hit these beats. And it's going to serve the story in this way. Are you coming up with these ideas from a character perspective? Are you coming up with them from a thematic perspective saying, this is a concept, this is an idea 
that I want to play around in, that I want to explore. This is a moral ambiguity that I, I'm curious to, to see these characters play out. Are you coming at it from a strictly story perspective and the characters are filling it all in? Is it all a general amalgam of those things? And, you know, how much do you take inspiration from just what's going on in your own sandbox in your head versus what the limitations, what editorial is telling you needs to be done by, you know, issue 10, what it's tying into, etc.? I mean, the amalgam version is probably the closest. I'd say I tend to err on the side of characters and themes. In terms of the story and the plot, I kind of, I have milestones, I have rough ideas at the ending. But it's sort of the actual writing of it. It's mostly driven by the characters. It's sort of, there's a lot of sort of, what does somebody feel in this situation? And I mean, in some ways, the limitations can be very, it's very good to sort of bounce off that. It's, there's other times where it's like, I don't know, I sort of really want to get into something, but I've, I've only got 20 pages and something has to go. So there's that element as well. It's like, there's a certain amount of information you want to deliver. And it's all about sort of delivering that in the most elegant and, like, you know, emotionally sort of satisfying, affecting way possible. And, you know, there's, there's the time limit aspect as well. Everything's up against the deadline. I used to write novels and those were very difficult because with those, you're sort of given like, oh, we'll need, we'll need a copy in like eight months. And I'd spent seven of those like writing comics. <laughs> And that's why I don't write novels anymore because I don't have a month at a time to like lock myself in a room and write a whole book because I've got comics to write. Your inbox is a lot more exciting with comics anyway, I'm sure, getting new art <laughs> all the time. You mentioned characters. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the, the great supporting cast. Of course, we've got Loki and Loki and Loki and Loki, uh, but we've got Lorelai, whom I really dug in this, Sigurd, the All Mothers. We've got Odin with a giant machine gun, which is a blast. Thor, there's a great scene with Thor and, and Loki where Thor is just completely done with Loki. But I particularly wanted to talk about Verity because she's just such a great character and obviously such a crucial part of the story. Was Verity part of your pitch or was she in what Lauren provided to you? No, she was part of the pitch for me. You know, Loki needed somebody to talk to, someone who he couldn't lie to was like the basis of the character. And then later we kind of came up with this thing of like, having done, you know, issue three and like done all the research on like the old legends, I kind of called her Verity Willis as a sort of nod to Roger Willis from the Bull Simonson issues. And and then I just went ahead and I said, yeah, okay, that's <laughs> that's her dad. Yeah, we needed, we needed somebody who would come into all this and sort of look at it from... I guess, a human viewpoint. And also somebody who could be sort of Loki's friend. And I think very, very quickly just became clear that like, they're just friends, just genuine friends. And we're not going to bring anything else into it. But yeah, basically, she just kind of grew on the page. And a lot of that was just all these great interactions because her and Loki do kind of ping pong between like, she sort of wants to be Loki's friend. He doesn't make that easy. He wants to be a proper friend to her. He doesn't make it easy on himself. It really was a case of just winding them both up and sort of letting them go. You're looking back on something like Agent of Asgard or some of your Inhumans work or something that you even wrote a couple of years ago. Do you have a sense of 
one, what you remember learning from any individual project as a comics writer? And then two, do you have the ability to look back on these things with complete fondness? Or are you more like, ah, if only I remember this was an issue, I feel like this could have been better, et cetera, et cetera. Or are you able to, to be a little bit removed from it? I mean, there's always stuff where I feel like, oh, if I just tweak that, you know, it'd be perfect. Generally, I'll sort of look back at stuff and I'll be happy with it. And, you know, there's, there's some of my early work where it's like, I can look back on it with enough sort of fondness to kind of go, yeah, it was the best I could do at the time. But Loki, Loki is something where there's only really a couple of tweaks. And I'm generally extremely happy with it. In terms of things like I, I remember learning while I was doing it, I couldn't break it down to like an individual issue. I mean, I remember, because um, Loki, I was already, I feel like I was already ending things on splash pages, which was definitely something I kind of picked up on the way into the American sphere, because obviously there's no room to do that in 2008. Yeah, I remember just, just thinking, okay, like last page is a splash page. Which, you know, isn't a hard and fast rule, but I can't break that habit right now. It's just like if I put, I always feel like if I put like two panels on the final page, I always feel like, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit cluttered. <laughs> but, like, but that's just me, you know, I'll read, I'll read like other comics, which have five or six pages on the final page. And it's like, oh yeah, perfect ending. But like for me, myself, I can't get to that place in my own way. Allow me out to jump in and just fanboy out for a second. One of my favorite final page splashes uh, in recent years is the Joe fix it reveal issue of immortal Hulk that it's Joe titled uh, issue, which I remember keeping that issue in my hand, particularly keeping that, putting it away saying that gave me chills. So that the likes of which, uh, yeah, I don't often see. That was a lot of fun. That was, that was a sort of wrinkle. I think I started that with, Ultimates? No, I might have started it on Loki, on the last arc of Loki. I was ending with the titles. And that's a pretty shameless lift from Sea Guy, Grammarus and Sea Guy. Because I remember reading that and going, oh, yeah, the titles really work at the end of the issue. And then, you know, it got time for like the Loki Last Days arc. And I was like, oh, I should put the titles in at the end of the issue. That'll be fun. And then that really looked good. And then I did that for all of the ultimates. And then for Immortal Hulk, I kind of I made it into a sort of format thing where like there'd always be the bottom third of the page would always be this sort of like absolute blackness for white lettering. And yeah, I feel like even with the sort of um, the quarterlies, the one shots that other people have done, we've managed to kind of keep that format in place. It works. It works really well. Uh, that particular issue I was very happy with because that was one where I got to kind of run the title on from the narration. Yeah, no, that's, that is a favorite technique of mine. So I'm glad, I'm glad it worked for you. Yeah. <laughs> Our producer says that was Immortal Hulk number 16. So thank you for that. Uh, you know, we're not here to talk about Hulk. We're talking about Loki, but I will digress even further and say, this to me feels like a fun early sampling of you writing Dr. Doom and me going, why is Al not writing a friggin' Dr. Doom book? For anybody who's listening who hasn't been reading Guardians of the Galaxy, surprise, 
Al's writing Dr. Doom again. Yeah. <laughs> this is all your big plan to be able to write a big honking Doom story, I hope. I mean, I, I just love writing Dr. Doom. He's he's a really good character. He's one of the best characters. And like, um, I remember in that Loki thing, yeah, there was the big magical battle, which was like, I had a lot of fun writing that. But yeah, I always feel like with Doom because I've written him a I've written him a few times, and I always end up leading on his kind of magical side. I think because when Doom does sort of science, when it's sort of, I feel like he can kind of be outsized by Reed Richards. That's sort of Reed's always going to be sort of top dog if it's pure science. But once you add the sort of magical thing, it becomes very unpredictable. It becomes very kind of. Um, and I think it's that mix of science and magic that makes him really sort of creepy and powerful and sort of thematically interesting that he's got this sort of slight demonic side to him, that he's like Faust, he's kind of soul to soul. And also I really like his personality in that, like, the massive ego. Just this guy who, like, honestly believes that he's just the best at everything, including, like, cooking and art. <laughs> like, uh... So there's, there's that. I always, I always kind of try and... Doom's, Doom's the guy who's sort of skim-read Friedrich Nietzsche and <laughs> thinks that he's like the overman. And he's like, yes, I'm I'm the superior human and it's, you know, it's my duty to like lead the herds of normal people who aren't as good as me. And, you know, if, if Reed Richards would only see this, if only he'd apologize <laughs> properly. <laughs> I, I feel like all of his big hatreds of people who've like humiliated him in one way or another, or he feels some sort of, and I mean, Reed Rich is like the greatest humiliation of all. He was right. And doom was wrong about like one thing, one time. And that's like, no, right. Enemies forever. Doom's wonderful. I could, I could talk about doom all day. He's fantastic. Yes. He you know, mentioning an individual character like Dr. Doom reading agent of Asgard, but then also talking about guardians of the galaxy. I'm curious, Al, I think, I've heard a bunch of different writers and editors just talk about the different challenges of on the most basic level of writing an individual hero or villain book and then writing a team book. I'm curious if you see them as different things in general or if you don't, because, you know, I, I guess Immortal Hulk, you know, it could be thought of certainly as an individual kind of character story, but we've seen the supporting cast of that series grow to, you know, just unbelievable degrees. And, and the depth that we've gotten from these, you know, non-title characters is really unbelievable. And and some of my favorite scenes are, are group scenes in that series. And then, you know, Guardians, obviously, similarly, and conversely, has great individual moments, you know. I'm curious if just generally you see them as different tasks or really if they're kind of the same to you. They are different in, in one way. In, in the team book, and I've sort of learned to my cost not to make my teams too big, but um, I've then completely broken that rule with this new series of Guardians because we're just everybody's <laughs> around. With a team book, you've got to give everybody a moment. Everybody's got to have a moment. And ideally, you want to give them all their moment in the same issue. So it's, it's very much a balancing act, writing a team book. You can have a sort of core cast, like a big three. In Guardians, there's definitely a kind of core cast and then sort of further out Guardians. But like with a solo book, with something like Loki, you can have this giant sporting cast, but there's only one star. 
And whatever any member of the splitting cast is doing, even when you've got sections of the splitting cast off on their own doing their own thing, it's all got to lead back to the title character. It's all got to somehow reflect the title character, reflect their journey, be of import to them somehow. It's all about the one person. I do like having big splitting casts because... You know, when I'm writing solo books, I like seeing this sort of the hero reacting to their friends, their enemies, the people in their life. And I like, I like turning those, the side characters. I like making them sort of beloved. I like, you know, Verity Willis is one example. It's like, you know, she's just got so many fans still, even after all this time. And that's a real pleasure for me. I always like it when the quote unquote less important characters become as important as the main character but it still all reflects on the main character it's like i really loved all the characters in loki but it wasn't verity willis's story as we went through that book was part of loki's story it's like and i think that's that's the big difference it's like you know one of these things is yeah plates bouncing on sticks and you've got to make sure they all have equal time and the other is sort of planets orbiting around the sun yeah all right al before we let you go one last thing i wanted to talk about was uh sort of the ending and the place setting for loki because coming out of it we get loki as a sort of very cool different type of character the moniker of god of stories is real neat real cool and i think really fits into the way that a lot of fans also think about Loki. And so seeing Loki as this not pure evil version and that sort of going forward and we see who Loki can be is really cool. Where did the God of Stories part come into your mind as you were building the story? It was actually quite late. For a very long time, he was going to become the God of Change. But basically, it was the thing where it was like, well, what's a lie? It's a story, you know. And a story is a lie, a, a lie is a story, it's a fiction. And that just seemed so much neater and so much more elegant that we just swung right into that. And yeah, you know, ending it, part of the goal of the series as a whole was what has ended up happening, which I'm very glad about, which is to sort of fix, fix as in secure in place, uh, Loki. Like, make sure like nail him down so like he wouldn't slide back and just kind of make sure that like you know he can do bad stuff it's like we kind of i feel like we left him in a point where like yeah he could he could stab his mother and did but like that was not out of character for the character we we did because you know he doesn't he doesn't take sides he doesn't he doesn't take sides he doesn't play favorites he doesn't like um but I think what we managed to avoid, and this wasn't just us, I feel like there was a lot of sort of a lot of people on our side in this, was like he hasn't backslid in, you know, eight years. We haven't seen the return of Loki Deville. He remains a sometimes amoral, sometimes uh unreadable sometimes an antagonist but 
no longer the bad guy. And I think that's that's kind of important because it's sort of a big part of the sort of theme and the message of the book insofar as it it had a message was that change is possible. You can you can be a better person than you are. And so it's good that it, it's it's really good that it did stick. I do regret that he went back to wearing shoes so quickly. <laughs> Because I really love Beth at Loki. I know so many fans have been like, oh, God, his disgusting feet. Why is he just walking everywhere? And I was like, no, it's great. <laughs> I, uh, at some point, I, I I would like to write Loki again sometime. I feel like I kind of, I, I was so invested in the character that I had to walk away. And like not touch him again for a while, like not even cameo him for a while. But it's been it's been a few years, and if Donny's got uh, room for a Loki one-off, then you know I wouldn't mind. It'd be nice. Well, you heard it here first, listeners. We got more Loki coming from the brain of Al Ewing at some point. At some point, one of these days. That's all we ask. One of for. these days, I'll. Uh, but it's weird. I think with Loki, I could sort of. I could come back for uh, just, you know, a quick tour around the old homestead and sort of, you know, a little bit of fun. With Hulk, no, 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 I'm never coming back. <laughs> I've got one Hulk story in me and you're reading it. I'm going to take that clip right now because as we've talked about, people can change, Al. Yeah. And you oh, never yes. know. <laughs> yeah. You never know. Al Ewing. Thank you once again for joining us on Marvel's Pull List and talking about a book that we love and we know a lot of our listeners love and uh, and obviously you love as well. So it's really cool to talk Loki with you. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Al. Thanks again to Al for beaming in from merry old England to talk to us about uh, Loki, Agent of Asgard. What a series. What a guy. But also the nicest person around. So that was great. Uh, also, kudos, congrats to Al, who will be writing Venom soon. Ooh, which, man. Heck yeah. Can't wait for that. Can't wait for more. All right, that wraps up our show this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. Also, he is the crime that will not be forgiven. Ooh. I'm Sierra Ryan. List. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.